0: We're going to return to the 14th chapter of the book of Matthew. Last time we spoke about the happenings of Herod and John the Baptist. And we also spoke about the feeding of the 5,000. How Jesus is that great provision for us. He is our sustenance. We spoke to the kind of prophetic you know realization in that scene where Jesus feeds the 5000 that as Paul would tell us over in the first Corinthian letter that Jesus was that rock, that food, that manna, he was everything that followed the nation of Israel when they wandered in the wilderness and provided for them life-giving sustenance as well as spiritual sustenance and so we saw that beautiful tie in there we're going to see another beautiful tie in in this next miracle that he does after they moved on from the feeding of the 5,000, after they got out from where they had fed this multitude, you come to Matthew chapter 14, and it ends in verse 21, and says, And they that had eaten were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship. And to go before undid the other side while he sent the multitudes away. I often sympathize with the disciples because here he is constraining them to get into a ship. And if I had to travel by boat, I would need to be constrained to get there too. Maybe even restrained in some ways. So he constrained them. He pushed them. He prodded them. He told them, go get in the boat and go to the other side before him. While he sent the multitudes away and when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea. This is the Sea of Galilee tossed with waves for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a spirit. And they cried out for fear straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, or really stirred up, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth thou art the Son of God. Now, what's amazing about this miracle, and I know that we've read this a thousand times, and we're all familiar with this, and there's lots of little Bible stories and probably coffee cups and things of Jesus walking on the ocean, probably one of his more famous miracles, okay? The one that's captured by not only uh, Christian groups, but also secular groups, the idea of him walking on water. But what's amazing about this, and you can see it in other accounts, so this account of Jesus walking on the water, this miracle of him doing that, is recorded in three of the Synoptic Gospels. So it's also recorded in Mark, and it's also recorded in John. What's interesting about those accounts, and we're going to read just a few verses out of them, but what's interesting out of those accounts is that both Mark and John's Gospels highlight different aspects of this miracle, okay? In Matthew's Gospel, you have a big emphasis on Peter's walking on water as well, okay? So you have Jesus walking on the water in all three of the accounts. Peter walking on the water is only recorded in Matthew's account. And it is speaking to something okay, that we're going to get into. In Mark's account, it talks about them getting into the boat. And this is Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 51. He gets into the boat. He waits in the mountain, fourth watch of the night. He comes and it says, And he would have passed them by, but when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out, for they saw him and was troubled. He says, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And when he went up with them into the ship, the wind ceased. And they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wonder. Mark's account doesn't speak about Peter's adventures, but it speaks about the instantaneous miracle of Christ just stepping in the boat and everything calms down and goes away. And that's going to, again, be important as we go forward. Lastly, in John's account, the thing that I wanted to grab from John's account that's important actually comes from his finishing the miracle of feeding the 5,000 in verse 14 of John chapter 6, it said, Then those men, those that were part of the multitude and part of the disciples, that had just seen him feed the five thousands, When they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet, that should come into the world. That's really important for us to grab. When Jesus fed those 5,000, we look at it and go, Oh, look how interesting, Jesus fed 5,000 people. And there were people within that group that looked and said, This is obviously a fulfillment of prophecy. This is obviously that prophet, that Messiah who was prophesied to come. And then he goes forward and it retells the story of walking on the water, that they go into the boat and he goes into the mountains. They got about 25 furlongs, 30 furlongs out into the ocean. Big storm comes up, impedes them. And then it says, But he saith unto them as they were drawing nigh, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, And immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. So now you have a third aspect of this miracle that wasn't necessarily related in the other two accounts. You have the fact that the miracle of teleportation happened. They were only 30 furlongs out into the ocean and boom, he steps on the boat and the winds stop and all of a sudden we're there. We're on the shore. So you got three different miracles that are taking place here. Three different aspects of this miracle that are themselves miraculous. So you have the miracle of walking on the sea with Peter as well. You have the miracle of the calming of the sea just by getting in the boat. And that's important to remember because if you go back to Matthew chapter 8, when they had already had one of these boats on the Galilean Sea adventure, okay? Uh, You know, again, we, we come to this that this is something they did routinely. Peter's a fisherman. I mean, this is his livelihood. He's on boats in the Galilean Sea all the time, okay? There was a a thing that you knew about the Sea of Galilee, which was that its unique position in that area of Israel caused it to have some very quick, spontaneous storms that would spring up because of how it comes off the mountains and all this stuff. And it would spring up and you would be just rowing along and all of a sudden you've got like a hurricane in your way. So this was something very, very commonly known among them. They had already had the Matthew 8 account. They were in the sea, and they were in the boat, and Jesus was with them. And the storm comes up, and they cry out for help, and Jesus rebukes them, rebukes the winds, and says, Oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? In that instance, though, he was on the boat. He had to stand up, go rebuke the winds, and they went away. Here, he just gets in the boat, and it instantaneously stops. You got to imagine that in their heads, at some point, you would go, Oh, yeah, remember last time this happened? Remember how this keeps coming up? It's kind of a thing with Jesus. And then John's account is the miracle of teleportation. But what I think is really important to grab out of this and these introductory lines is this. Just as those men in John's account had said, this is obviously the prophet. He has fed these 5,000. This is obviously the Messiah based on his miraculous feeding of the 5,000. In the same way, Jesus walking on the water was not happenstance, okay? Jesus didn't walk on the water because it was like, hey, how else am I going to get over there? Well, I guess I've got to walk across the water to get over there. You know, I can't take another boat. I can't swim. I don't want to walk around. I can't teleport. I mean, I don't know. You know, I mean, those, those aren't the reasons. He chose to walk on the water for a reason, okay? He chose to set this up the way that it happened. He chose to do this. And there was a reason, like there usually always is. So it's not only that this story speaks to the dominance that Jesus has over the elements and over the, you know, the, the issues of physics. Okay, you know, we always uh, kind of joke with the engineers in the family about you know one of the engineering projects at Alabama that usually make them do is come up with this like concrete boat that they have to make float. And people would say, well, concrete can't float, and they obviously tried to disprove that, all right, about how you can make a boat out of concrete in such and such a way that you can float on, you know, on a boat made out of concrete. Well, you've obviously got some physics that are involved with that. That's how you come up with that project, all right? Well, the physics of a man walking across the top of the water are obviously contrary to what the laws of physics would say that you could do. Okay, so besides just the obvious that we all know about and we've all heard this story and we all go back to this story about how Jesus is the man who commands the waves of the sea. And he's the one I mean, he has the power. He is the creator of the universe. He can reverse molecules and he can make physics go bye bye anytime he wants to. I mean, that's just evident. When he is resurrected, guess what? Physics went bye-bye. The laws of gravity changed, alright? When he left this world, floated on up to heaven. Here, though, you have more than that. There's more than that in this section of Scripture. Him walking on water, whereas it's not necessarily a prophecy, it was a confirmation of his godness, okay? Okay? Besides the obviously we have just stated, he was confirming a scriptural reality. When you look up back, and I want everybody to flip back over to Job chapter 9, Job chapter 9, Job is answering some of his friends there when he is talking about the attributes of God. And in Job chapter 9, starting in verse 1, it says, Then Job answered and said, I know it is so of a truth, but how should man be just with God? If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. This is God. Who hath hardened himself against him and hath prospered? Which removeth the mountains, and they know not. Which overturned them in his anger. Which shaketh the earth out of her place, and the pillars thereof tremble. Which commandeth the sun, and it riseth not, and sealeth up the stars. Which alone spreadeth out the heavens, and treadeth upon the waves of the sea. Which maketh Arcturus, Orion, and Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. Which doth great things past finding out, yea, and wonders without numbers. So way on back in the book of Job, Job in one of his descriptions of God says he is the man that treads upon the waves of the sea. The man that treads upon the waves of the sea. So when Jesus is here treading upon the waves of the sea, he's walking right out of the book of Job, okay? He's walking here by them in fulfillment of this ancient and beloved scriptural text, the book of Job. It makes me think that, like, if it had been one of us in our time, if we were the ones doing this, like in today's time, that we would be strutting across that sea. And as we kind of glance over at the ship, you know, we'd be shouting out, like, hashtag Job 9, okay? We'd be, like, referencing back. Remember that, guys? Hashtag Job 9, guys. Remember how I said I was the one that walked on a tread on the waves? Well, look at me treading. Look at me treading, you know? I mean, that's, that's where you get this idea that in our time, that's how we would relate. And you just... I mean, I don't think, I don't think Jesus was just like blase. Str- I mean, you got the, the, he's God. Okay. When God walks, he struts just a little bit because he's God. Okay. And so in this case, you got it. He's not just like strolling. Like, oh yeah, by the way, What's up guys. How are you? Yep. Just walking out here on the ocean. Just like every day. He's not walking the dog out there. He is walking out of the book of Job. He's walking out of a testimony to God's power. I am the one that treads on the waves. So look at me. Recognize who I am. So Christ here in this account is once again, he's confirming his power, his godness, his messianic status. And he is trying to draw his disciples into greater faith in him and his power and his promises. I mean, this is the second boat on the Galilee Sea Storm adventure, okay? This is part two. He's already gone through it once with them. Guys, don't you remember? Don't you remember the last time I said, get in the boat and go? I got in the boat with you, the storm came up, what happened? I looked at you and said, hey, I own this. Chill out. Have faith. In the same way, he says, go across. I send you across there. I told you to Go. Do you know I'm God? Do you believe I'm God? Do you believe I have control over these things? So he is trying to draw his disciples into greater faith in him and his power and his promises. So this is where we stop just for a second because we want to take this and we want to take this moment for the, for the kids again to do a kids moment. I know we're way overpowered with adult moments here um, at this point. But for the kids moments, which would be mainly my kids at this point, kids. I want you all to look at me for a second. Look at me for a second. So what we remember about Jesus walking on the sea, okay? Jesus is awesome, okay? Awesome meaning that he is full of awe and power. That he is so powerful and so amazing that he can walk on the top of the water. You know how we go swimming in the pool, okay? We swim through the water. Jesus walked across the water and he didn't sink, That's how powerful He is. And you say, well, how can Jesus do that? Because He's God. That's how He's different from us. He is God. He has all power. He is the God over everything, including that water, which means He can tell that water to hold Him up, and He can walk on it just like we walk around here. So this means that when Christ... Finds a problem like the water, the tornado that was on the water. He can control it all. He can rebuke it all. He can take care of every problem in this world. Did y'all hear that? So parents, this moment for y'all is that you help, which again, preaching to myself here, help your kids this week understand how powerful Christ is. Get them excited about knowing Jesus as a superhero. So maybe this is they're not here today, but you as a parent or a grandparent, you can take this and you can relay this story and you can text message, email, FaceTime, whatever with your grandkids and kids. And you can kind of refresh this in them, but let them know that Jesus is a superhero. He's the greatest superhero there ever was and show them how he is the one we turn to to help in all our problems. So as we go on, we see another aspect of this that's very interesting. How did the disciples end up on this boat in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the storm? How did they get there? Because Jesus told them to go, right? Jesus sent them in this way. In fact, it says he constrained them into the boat. Now I don't know if that's because they didn't want to go, that they didn't want to go across without him. But I mean, he was saying, hey, guys, Go. Go. I got this. I'm going to take care of this multitude. You go. Get on the boat and go to the other side. I'll meet you over there. Got some stuff I got to handle, and then I'll be over there with you. So they were in the situation because he told them to go into this situation. All right? And when I kind of got out of this And again, something that I don't guess I've ever really thought about too in depth with this story before. Again, a lot more than what we normally get off this story. What do we normally get off this story? You go through life, you get in a storm, but if you keep your eyes on Jesus, everything works out, right? That's what we get out of this. That's the story. Keep your eyes on Jesus or else you sink. Keep your eyes on Jesus or else the tornado is going to get you, okay? There's a lot more to it than that. Number one in this, Jesus has sent these people. This is a clinical picture of evangelism and the Christian walk. This is a clinical picture of evangelism and the Christian walk. Jesus sends us. He sends us as his people. Not just sending us to Africa. He sends us when we go to work tomorrow morning. He sends us when we go to school tomorrow morning. He sends us when we go home from here. So number one, the sending comes from jesus jesus sent them ahead of him the journey number two which is what they're on they're in the boat they're toiling they're rowing they're struggling in the sea but they're on the path that jesus sent them on right they're in this ocean with this storm ultimately because jesus sent them there right are we in agreement with that He sent them on this path. They didn't say, okay, Jesus told us to get to the other side. He gave us five options. This is the one we chose and, up look, it didn't work out for us. Must not have been the way Jesus wanted us to go. No, Jesus said, get in this boat and row that away, okay? And Jesus, being the omnipotent, omniscient God that he is, knew exactly where he was sending them and knew exactly what they were going to go through on the way, So the sending and the journey are still all in and amongst what Jesus is doing. And then thirdly, you have the rescue. Now, Jesus in our lives, and again, I try not to get too like non-scriptural, allegorical kind of stuff going on, but this is not necessarily allegory. This is the reality of the situation. You're taking a real-life situation here and understanding that this is applicable in every single one of our lives. Now, it's not directly applicable because I ain't going to be in a boat in the middle of the ocean. That's how I know that this doesn't apply to me in that way. Okay? But Jesus is going to send us into some storms in life. (laughs) Do we believe that? Nowhere did Jesus say, I'm going to send you on a smooth, easy path with no obstacles or problems. And you're going to just be, I'm not going to send you on a roller coaster where you just kind of cruise around and have fun and then land at your destination. He said, no, I'm going to send you and I'm actually going to purposefully send you into some storms. He's going to purposefully tell you to go, knowing full well that what you are heading into is directly into the path of a hurricane. And you say, well, why is that? Why would he do that? You know, the the world's argument is, is that if God was so good and loving, then only good and loving and fun and happy things should be happening. There should be no death, no problems, no issues. Then they... Miss the all-important fact is that the death and the problems and the issues in this world are all because of us not God okay and as we've been talking about with the parables you know we got that revelation from the parables of the big picture plan of how God's going to make it all right but in his time according to his will so we know he's going to fix it yes we did mess it up but he's going to fix it eventually you say, well, why would God send me into a storm? Why would God allow bad things to happen to me? Why would God put me in this place knowing that it's going to cause me problems, trife, struggles, whatever. I think I made up a word that I said trife instead of strife. Struggles, all these things. Why would God, why, 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 God, why, God? Why did you do this to me? Well, first, I think sometimes it is to prove us or to test us. And you say, well, that, you know what? That sounds a little weird. Well, here's, where we find this held up. Number one, when you go back up into the account of the feeding of the 5,000, when we read last week from John chapter 6 about this account, Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him. He said unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus already knew what was going to happen and already knew what he was going to do to fix the situation. But he asked Philip, hey, how are we going to pay for all this? How are we going to get bread for all these people? You say, well, why did Jesus ask him that? He knew what he was going to do. He knew the bread. He knew the 5,000. He knew how he's going to multiply. Them. He knew all that stuff. Why did he ask Philip this? Well, by divine inspiration, he gave us the answer to prove him, to test him. This isn't a wicked testing This is a very godly, spiritual, faith-inspired testing. He's trying to draw Philip in to belief. He's trying to draw Philip in to trust. He's trying to draw Philip in with this question. Hey, you see this practical problem we have. Do you trust, believe, and have faith in me that I can fix it? Or are you going to come up with a thousand excuses? Same thing with Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to give you a child, and in all the nations of the world, you are going to be a blessing to them by my divine workings through your offspring. Year goes by, decade goes by, couple of decades go by, and Abraham starts going, Oh, I'm really not sure God's going to keep his end of the bargain. Well, let's work out a deal with Hagar. Let's get us because we've got to do this for God. He obviously has missed the window. He doesn't know how human anatomy works. And here we go. We've got to fix this for God. Let's get in there and let's fix it for God. The disciples did that with the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus, we don't have the money. We don't have the bread. You're just going to have to send them back. Don't worry. We'll take care of the logistics of it. But they got to go back into town. Abraham looks at Sarah and says, we're going to have to fix this for God. Let's get Hagar in here. Let's make this work. I need an offspring. I don't have an offspring. A plus B equals C. Here we go. Now I've got an offspring. And now God's prophecy can come true. When Abraham was 100 years old, he looks at Abraham and goes, or when Abraham was 100 years old, God looks at him and goes, I, I, I got this. I've had it all along. I knew exactly when I was going to do this. I knew exactly when I was going to fix this. I knew exactly how I was going to do this. But in that process, you had a testing. Are you going to trust and believe in me and what I've promised? Or are you going to falter, give up on me and start turning to your own means? So sometimes the trials are there to test us. They're there to prove us in that way. Back in Exodus, when we were going through the book of Exodus, we talked about this last week too, that at the waters of Merah, when he chopped down the tree and he made them sweet for him, he said, there he made for them a statute and an ordinance. And there he proved them And said, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon you. So there again, he proved, he tested, he tried them. Are you going to have faith in me, or are you going to not believe in me? Are you not going to trust me that I'm going to take care of you? Sometimes he does it to refine us. And that's not refining as going from country to civilized, whatever. It's a refinement of our faith. Okay? So this doesn't mean you have to start swilling, you know, coffee or tea with your pinky outstretched. Even though that might be a little fun to see. This is a refinement of our faith. say, well, how does that work? Well, Jesus told us in John chapter 15, when he was talking about the vine, saying, I'm the true vine, my father is the husbandman. He says, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he purges it or trims it, cuts it, prunes it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Okay. So he has born someone again. They are bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And you'd say, well, that sounds like they're in a good spot. Jesus says, yeah, but my father wants them to be more better. Okay. More fruit. So what do we do to get more fruit? What do you do with your bushes when you want them to grow bigger, healthier? You cut back. To allow new growth to happen. Well here he's saying my father being that husbandman is going to go on to that vine where the fruit is being born. And he's actually going to trim those branches back so that they'll produce more fruit later. Well that description is not a happy-go-lucky description. Being pruned is not a happy-go-lucky experience. This isn't I'm going to send them to a conference and prune them and let them grow more. No, this is a hurtful, you know invasive procedure to do this. So a lot of times the trials, the problems that we face are there to prune and refine us in that way. First Thessalonians chapter two, he will say, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which or who tries our hearts. James chapter 1, verse 3: Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. That trying is not always some kind of demonic thing that's happened to you. That trying sometimes is God sending you into a storm of a trying experience to try your faith, to prove your faith, to test your faith. And what you find is that through that process that godly inspired holy spirit sanctioned process we are being pruned and growing from that that the trying of our faith then works or grows in us patience chapter 12 he says blessed i mean chapter 1 verse 12 he says blessed is the man that endureth temptation For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Here you have a trying and a testing of the faith that grows into something else, that gains something else. The whole process that we go through here in this life is to grow us and refine us. God has not put us in a garden on the back 40 and never comes and pays us any attention. In fact, in some cases, and I didn't include it in here, but you have the Hebrews account of the chastening hand of God. God chastens those he loves. He chastens his sons and daughters. Why? So that after the chastening, the correction, it will produce the fruit of righteousness. So God not only on the negative side when we are or ero- er- in error... God corrects us to produce the fruit of righteousness. When we are in, technically you could say, good standing. We're on that vine and we're producing fruit. God prunes and cuts and trims to produce more fruit, to produce more patience, to receive that crown of life, to grow, to prosper in that way. And lastly, He does it to draw us closer. When you look at 1 Peter chapter 4... It'll say, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trials, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened unto you. That would fall into the category of, Why is this happening to me? Why, oh God, have you let this happen to me? This is so strange. It's not supposed to happen this way. I'm supposed to have a good, easy life because I do good things for you. But you should not think that it's some strange thing that happened to you. In fact, it's actually the most common thing. That happens to the child of God who's trying to pursue and follow God. And so because of that, he says, but rejoice. Jesus, when he was talking to the disciples, as they're in that ship in the middle of that storm, says, Don't be afraid, actually be of good cheer. Same way here. Rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of of Christ's sufferings that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of the glory and of God rested upon you. There's a drawing in from that. As we suffer, whether it's a righteous suffering because we are suffering as children of God who are representing the kingdom of God in a wicked and perverse generation, we're suffering for righteous things in that way, or suffering through trials that are sent our way or we are sent into the way of. Either way, sometimes those trials that we are put through draw us closer to God. We are partakers of His suffering. We are partakers of His trials and His sufferings, which means we're also partakers in His joy on the other side. So there's a drawing in effect of it too. But a lot of times people would ask, you know, we've, we've said it over and over again, why God, why would you do this? And I think the answer is above. Those three that we just talked about, those are the answers to that question. Why God would you put me through this problem? Well, it may be because I'm trying to prune you to produce more fruit. It may be because I'm trying to correct you because you were in error. It may be because I'm trying to draw you closer to me. How many of you have heard tales of people who have gone through hard, hard problems in their life and the statement they will make is, I was never more close to God than in that moment. So these trials are things that are there for our betterment in that way. The trials are a confirmation of God's presence in your life, not a denial of it. You know, we often think that if things are going bad, it must mean that God has left his hand off the tiller and things are out of control. Instead, what we look at with the trials, we go, oh, no, this is actually, I mean, Jesus directly sent the disciples into this storm. It wasn't that he was absent-minded. He was like, oh, I got, conf- I got distracted over here by the multitudes. and I, Oh, I didn't know I sent them into a storm. Man, bad form, Jesus. And That's not, that's not what happened. He, he was completely in control of that situation. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that he was going to come to them. He knew that Peter was going to ask to get... I mean, he knew all of that. He did this on purpose. And so, therefore, we conclude from that, it is a confirmation of his direct involvement in the disciples' life. And in that same way, it's a confirmation of ours. Direct involvement in our life. So the point is, is that Christ sins for his glory. Everything's for the glory of God. We get that right. Everything that He did, everything that we do is to be for the glory, praise, and honor of the name of Jesus. So He sends us for His glory. We go for His glory. We even suffer trials for His glory. And in the process, we grow by it. One of the verses of scriptures from Hebrews will talk about Jesus and speak to the fact that Jesus, through the suffering, I think it was Hebrews 5 and 8, through His suffering learned obedience. You say, that's an interesting way of describing an omnipotent God an omniscient God. But it says in Hebrews that he learned obedience through his suffering. He grew in that way, the same way we do through our sufferings. So we don't have in this relationship between God and man, we don't have some vindictive God that causes strife on us, but a loving father who corrects us who prunes us and helps us to be even more fruitful. We don't have a wrathful deity who takes some kind of sadistic pleasure in causing pain to the world, but rather a compassionate companion who joins with us in suffering and walks with us through it all. So then quickly we talk about how we get through the growing. So... You notice in the scripture, it's, he'll say, be of good cheer. It is I, be not afraid. Peter says, bid me, Lord, come out there. I'm a, I, you know, He was afraid of the sea. Bid me, Lord, to come out there and I'll know it's you. Goes out there, starts walking, gets out in the middle of it. He was afraid, began to sink. He cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and said, O thou little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, of a truth out there son of God. There are some considerations to be made about this event dealing with Peter going out into the out into the storm. And in the picture overall. Number one, they were afraid to begin with of the sea, right? I see the storm, I see everything around me, I'm scared, Lord, we're gonna perish That kind of a moment. They were afraid of the sea to begin with. And then on top of all that, as a kind of icing on the cake, while everything seemed like it was sinking and going under, now they see a spirit that they're afraid of too. It's like if I'm going to get a double whammy here, first off, I'm already scared out of my pants that I'm going to die on the ocean. And now I see a ghost. Now I'm really, you know, you're, you're really wigging me out in this way. But the underlying thing of all that is fear. Fear, 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 fear. They're out there, they're away from Christ, and they have fear. In our trials, fear is the greatest ever-present emotion. Fear of failure, fear of death, fear of insignificance, fear of regret, fear of loss, fear of whatever. Fear is what dominates us. It is fear that was conquered and destroyed on the cross. Christ says that he on the cross destroyed and set free all those who were in bondage to fear of death. So fear is this ever-present emotion, especially in our trials. And then you have Peter's kind of presumptuous versus Peter's dedication going on here. It's kind of, you don't, you don't necessarily get what J- Peter was doing. Why did Peter ask to get out of the ship? Why did he ask to walk on the ocean? Some people will say it was presumptuous that he just wanted to be like Christ. He, you know, Peter's always the one to jump to the forefront and be like, well, let, you know, let me just show you how close to Christ I am. Let me show you. I'll never deny you Christ. I'll never, I'm, everyone else can deny you. I never will, you know, that's Peter for you. So it could be that Peter wanted to be out there with Christ because he wanted to be like him. You know, I want to walk on the water like you. I want to show everybody how close we are. He wanted to enjoy the power of walking on the water like him. You know, kind of a selfish motive there. But the other side of that is, is he could have wanted to be with Christ because he wanted to be with Christ and be safe, okay? Hey, get me near Jesus and see if I can't survive this storm. So it may be that because of his fear, he was motivated... To reach out to Christ and say, Christ, let me come to you. But you do note that Peter did not have full confidence in this situation when he got started. He was not immediately persuaded it was Christ when he saw him. That's why he said, Lord, if it be you, bid me to come on the water. So you kind of see a lot in this with Peter and what's happening. But what's important for us to grab is, again, what we talked about in the very beginning. They had already been in a similar trial like this. They had been on a ship in the sea in a storm. And in that trial, he had rebuked them as well, saying, ye of little faith. And what's important for us to grab from this story and that story is that when we are in the trials that we face in life, we sometimes, whether we feel like Jesus is right nearby, like in the situation where he was in the bottom of the boat, or whether we feel feel like jesus is far he's been up on the mountain he's left us out here we're all alone nobody can help us in all of these things we are tempted to fear we are tempted to fear what's going to happen and fear in that way is the bondage that draws us back away from trusting in god so for the disciples here they are an example for us to see that whether near or far, no matter where it is, we still let fear drive us in that way. But the three kind of implications you get from this account is that whether Christ is far or near, we're going to use that same example, whether he is far or near, whether he is whatever close to us, far away from whatever we feel in that, whatever might drive us to fear, what we understand in both of these scenarios is Jesus most certainly is the master of any storm that this universe has to throw at us. He is the master of the whole universe. He's the upholder of the whole universe. No matter what problems, what trials we face in this world, what we go back to is that Jesus is able in any trial that we face. That in him are all the powers of the cosmos that beyond that in him we have that great high priest who has entered and gone through all of these storms just like we're going through and intercedes for us in those storms. So if there's a better companion to have in a problem or trial we're facing in life, I can't think of one. Let me tell you, Dr. Phil and Oprah are not going to get you through that trial like Jesus will, okay? Okay? So something to understand as well is that when Peter came walking on the water, he was walking on the water by the power of God. He was walking on the water by the power of God, the same power that Christ had that was allowing Christ to walk on the water. Peter was walking by that same power. The laws of physics were being reversed for Peter as well. Peter didn't have some kind of special anointing of the Holy Ghost. He wasn't different than us. The same power that dwelled in him is the same power that dwells in us. And that is the power of Christ. Which means that when we go through the storms in our lives of trials and persecutions and issues, the same power that allowed Peter to stand in the middle of the storm on the water is the same power that we have then when we go through these trials, we go back, and we don't fear, we go back to the revelation that Christ dwells within us. The power that Christ has to stand out in the middle of the ocean and go, hashtag Job 9, is the same power that we have to come up in the middle of a storm in our lives and go, and Jesus said, all things would be well. Jesus rebuked the storm on Galilee. He can rebuke the storm in my life. Not getting into a name it and claim it deal, but I mean, at some point in time, we do need to start naming some scriptures and claiming the power that are within them, okay? At some point you got to understand that he wrote these scriptures and all of these people that we've seen go through all of these trials in life and have come out on the other side and go God is my tower, my strong fortress, my bulwark, my shield, my sword, my defender. Those aren't written so that we can have fun songs to sing on Sunday morning. They're written to be powerful reminders to us when we go through problems that Jesus is able and that through Jesus, we are able to get through it. So it ties our lives in with the sending of Christ that we do not go alone in this. Christ's power is always with us. It upholds us and guides us and empowers us. And the other thing is that when he responds to Peter and he says, oh, ye have little faith. We know that, number one, that that little faith thing does not imply that Peter somehow had less of a quantity of faith than another apostle, okay? That phrase, O ye of little faith, is basically a lack of belief. Why are you not believing in me? Why do you not trust me? He's not saying, Peter, why don't you have the same type of faith that Paul has or Timothy has? Or He's saying, why are you doubting me in this situation? Why are you not believing that I am the one who can help you with this? So it was that time that when Christ had kind of assuaged Peter's fears before, okay? Last time they were on the boat, same thing happened. He'd already assuaged Peter's fears before. He'd already assuaged Peter's fear here. He had told Peter, it's me, come on out on the water. Peter had seen that and said, oh, well, if Jesus is here, I can do anything, the storm's not going to matter. Here I go, out on the water, I start walking. But then as Peter started looking at the storm again, he started having that fear creep back up started to sink, started getting mired down with it. And Jesus is like, why did you quit believing? You stepped out, you started out strong. What really in that moment caused you to go, I don't think Jesus has got it. So the lesson for us is not just to keep your eyes on Jesus kind of a deal. But it is to remember and to hold fast to our faith in Christ. We're going to face trials. Problems are going to happen. They're going to be different, diverse, and numerous in our life. But what we gather from that is the same power of Christ that brought me through the last trial is going to bring me through the next trial. I don't care what it is, I don't care what it is I'm going to face. I don't care what the problem is. The problems can be as different and big and grand and all The power is still there and it's not changed. So we need to remember and hold fast to our faith in Christ in those moments. So Christ, in our conclusion, Christ is going to call us. He's going to send us into the world to glorify his name. And he, we, he will send us to the front line of combat. So, we're going, there are going to be trials for us. We have to accept that fact. Secondly, we understand that those trials that we face will be growing potentials for us. That in them we can grow. That through the testing, through the refining, through the drawing closer to faith in Him, we are growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And lastly, that. We remember that that the magnificent, all-encompassing power of Christ goes with us in everything. Everything. That there is no place that he is not. There is no foe that his power cannot overcome. And that we are therefore more than conquerors in Christ. So there's no problem that we face, no issue in this world that's ever going to overcome us when we are remembering what Christ can and has already done. So let us remember the words of Isaiah the prophet as we go forward with this in this week. Isaiah 43 will say this, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine." When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia, and Saba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee, and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east, and gather thee from the west. And I will say to the north, give it up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Even every one that is called by my name. For I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yea, I have made him. That picture that we get in Isaiah 1 is that God is in complete and utter control of us. We are his. We are called by his name. We are called his people. We are called into his power. He says, Don't worry, don't be afraid. You can go through the waters, they're not going to overflow you. You can go through the fire, they're not going to burn you. Why? Because I'm keeping you by my hand. So let's take the admonition of Isaiah, let's take the admonition of Jesus. Do not be afraid, be of good cheer, because I have overcome the world. May God bless us.